0: Listener
1: Production. Hello, I'm Gary Megan and welcome to a Plate to Call Home where we explore the stories behind the food and get to know some of my food heroes. My next guest fell into food completely by accident and not in the way you might expect no washing dishes at 15 to get his foot in the door or toiling away for years on the hot stoves of the world's most famous kitchens. But now he rubs shoulders with some of the world's best chefs. Think people like Massimo Batura, Magnus Nielsen or David Chang. He worked for Fairfax Media for 11 years and is the man behind some of Australia's most familiar and also some of Australia's biggest events such as City to Surf, Sydney Good Food Month, and the famous night noodle markets. His expertise in this field took him to London, and then for the past five years, to LA, where he's worked for the LA Times. He, along with the late Jonathan Gold, brought the LA Food Bowl to life, one of America's biggest food events. He shares his insight into big media events, and also life in the US, and particularly LA pre and post-2020. He shares his insight into big media events and life in the US and particularly LA pre and post 2020. Please welcome Angus Dillon. So Angus, welcome to the studio. We normally have people in the studio that are kind of earthy producers or chefs that are, they've got their, you know, hands and elbows, let's say, kind of deep in the food industry. Yours comes from an entirely different perspective. Can you tell us what that is?
0: Yeah, I mean, to, to be brutally honest, I, I fell into the the food world. I didn't actively pursue it. My background is more media uh, and events. And uh, having worked at Fairfax, what was Fairfax, um, something like 15, 20 years ago, food was a big part of the City Morning Herald, The Age, and still obviously is. And Good Food Month, Night Noodle Markets, uh, Good Food Guide Awards was a big part of my role. And that really is where I started working in food and got to know a lot of people in food. Um, at that time, it was really good because of it combined with exercise, running and sports. So it was a good good balance. And you mean from an events perspective? You're talking about- you From know, an City events to, perspective, uh, from, you know, yeah.
1: City so, of Swan and all of these that uh, were generated via Fairfax, I suppose.
0: Yeah, I, I had a boss at the time, Robert Whitehead, who was the former editor of the City Morning Herald. And I think the events business was struggling. It wasn't necessarily a profit driving business. And they, they put me into that, I think, because he wanted to give me a challenge. And at first, I think I recommended we should just cancel all the events we do because <laughs> they all lose money. But from there, yeah, it kind of grew. And food was a real passion from an event perspective because we launched the night noodle markets in Hyde Park. We brought them to Melbourne and took them all around the country, but they were just great events and great people. And from there, I got to meet, you know, every chef or every restaurateur or every Everyone in the food business across the world, and that yeah. was a really—I was going to say—from supply chain all the all the way up, and an an interesting perspective,
1: I bet.
0: Luckily, I've got to work with people like um, along the way, like Joanna Saville in Australia or Jonathan Gold um, in America, and those people know, you know, the food world uh, very intricately. And from from them, I got to learn how to apply, I guess, my business uh, and commercial side to the food world. And I think at that time, as you'd know, with MasterChef and everything like that, 15 years ago, food just rode this huge wave in Australia. And from an event perspective, the first big event I did was with fran Adria at the State Theatre, and we had almost 2,000 or 1,500 people there listening to a guy who couldn't really speak English, <laughs> showing everyone how he puts things in the
1: microwave. You know, we're not, when I think about it, you know, from a hospitalitarian's perspective or even a chef's perspective, when we think of events, they're small scale, you know, where we're where weddings and wakes and, you know, there can be big outside events, but they might be anything from, you know, 100 to 1,000. That kind of where it tops out. When you're talking it for, talking about it from conceptualising a media event and driving that, you're talking hundreds of thousands, right?
0: I think it was Jill DePlay and Terry Durack and a committee of people who put the original Good Food Month with Good Living in Sydney together and obviously Melbourne had the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. But the Night Noodle Markets was a, a concept that, Originally, was at the Opera House, but when I started, we moved it to Hyde Park. And each year, it got bigger and bigger until the point, I think, we were getting 500,000 people um, across the course of two to three weeks. I, I haven't been there for five years, so whatever's happening there now is, <laughs> is is not my responsibility. But yeah, I mean, Melbourne, I think I remember vividly the, the first night we had the night noodle markets on the Yarra there. And yeah, I was a little bit scared by how many people turned up, and so were our food vendors. It was crazy. Um, but yeah, the, I mean, the appetite... Pardon the pun. There's lots of food puns in in yeah. in the event world. Keep them coming. We're happy with those. Yeah, it, <laughs> it, it's incredible, and I've seen that obviously in in America as well. Having gone over there five years ago, and the same in same thing happened in London. Um, we had ten thousand people per night, up to 30,000 people. Yeah, but yeah, I mean it's obviously a different world now. Do you think um,
1: events like night noodle markets change the landscape or people's perspective of food?
0: Uh, I think in, in Sydney, the original intention of the night noodle markets was really to, and you've got to think this is when they were created first 20 years ago, uh, it was a different world culturally and in terms of people's understanding of people like Joanna Savile, who spent so much time focusing on different ethnic communities. It really helped showcase Sydney's, the quality of Asian cuisine in Australia. And that was really the genesis for the event. We had so many meetings every year talking about turning it into all cuisines, but every year that was knocked on its head because of Australia was, a, you know, has a place in Asia, and and food really does help tell that story. And we love
1: that food. Thank goodness that didn't happen.
0: And it makes so much sense in that hawker environment. Um, so I think in that perspective, it has helped uh, educate people on the depth and the variety. Um, albeit obviously people love the things like the ramen burgers and all the the gimmicks that Asian food does so well.
1: Yeah, but at the same time, it's um. You, you're changing how a community functions in a sense, aren't you? I mean, all of a sudden you've got a community event that's on the calendar that people are looking looking forward to and, and thinking about and booking out months in advance, right?
0: Yeah, I mean, Sydney ha- didn't necessarily have a history of those big events like Noodle Markets in Hyde Park. Obviously now they've got Vivid and other things, but I come from Adelaide originally and Adelaide, I think it says it on the number plates, is the festival state. And the whole month of March there's... I have people out all over town for a city the size of 1.2 million people like Edinburgh during the Fringe. It's hundreds of thousands of people um, going out and celebrating. And from a community perspective, it is a really great way of pulling a city together, which obviously Melbourne does really well. But yeah, I think food festivals are a really great way of doing that.
1: But historically, food festivals have been, you know, a minefield. I mean, you, you would have come across this. And advice from Joanna Sewell, I'm sure, was the same, is that people have these grand ideas. They launch a food festival. But it can be local. It can be small. It can be regional. And they adjust a minefield of uh, problems and really make a profit and disappear quickly.
0: Yeah. So I what's the secret? A bit like restaurants. You're kind of <laughs> crazy to get into food festivals. <laughs> from my perspective, I've always come up from the, from the angle of working with a big media company so in Los Angeles, it's with the Los Angeles Times or in London, it was with the Evening Standard because of it, it's about bringing the content to life. And obviously they have the resources, the food yeah. writers, and you can do it from top to bottom. You know, Getting to work with someone like Jonathan Gold, every chef wanted to be involved because he was so well respected and regarded the only Pulitzer Prize winning food writer. So if I didn't have that backing, I, from my perspective, it would be a lot more challenging or you're in a situation where you've you're part of government, or you're an independent group that's supported and funded, like Melbourne Food and Wine does so well. But yeah, it's definitely not an industry that uh, is easy. Like all events, yeah. it's very challenging. I suppose
1: within Fairfax, and I'll we'll come to LA because that's obviously important. And your perspective perspective on that, you know, within Fairfax, I mean, you've got you have got hu- huge resources and a readership too that are plugging into it? Because there are different demographics in Australia, right? Those that are interested in food than, and those that are not. And certainly I'm sure food writers that are writing for, you know, the Herald Sun know exactly where they're pitching at. Was it is it much the case when you're, you know, conceptualizing a, a festival like that?
0: I think most people who work for those traditional media companies these days spend most of their t- time worried about the ever-diminishing resources. <laughs> um, but It's um, an industry under pressure, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I guess events provide that avenue to try and diversify their their revenue streams but case in point with the noodle markets all it takes is Sydney to have one uh, really bad period which I think they had a couple of years ago and it rains out three weeks and you lose a lot of money I guess you can get insurance for that to some, some extent but it's a risk but yeah I mean working with those media companies you have a lot of benefit one you can obviously have influence over getting access to parks and locations that the average person might not like yeah. Hyde Park yeah. at the time and then you've obviously got the built-in audience to sell it to and the readers who want to engage with that product so you and then you've got the commercial partners advertisers like when we worked with you with city you know that they want to ha- have more than just an ad in the newspaper or online they want to have a full immersive experience with their brand and hospitality and so it is a kind of perfect ecosystem working with within a media context but to run yet yeah, to run it outside of that is obviously a, a much bigger challenge. But some people do it really do it really well. Um, social media has helped really, uh, I guess, provide a bit more of a democratic playing field to to people who maybe don't work for a big media company to do events. Yeah, in within the uh, I think Sydney Good Food Month. And correct me if I'm wrong.
1: Didn't you shut down the Sydney Harbour Ridge and do a massive breakfast across its lanes?
0: Yeah, I think um, <laughs> when it relaunched with Joanna Savile, and um, I think for a little while it was called Crave Sydney International Food Festival and we all hated that name, but it was um, driven by, I guess, a broader government initiative around food. But they helped close the Harbour Bridge. They did a breakfast on the bridge. It was a very much a government driven initiative to try and get those pictures all around the world of, of Sydney. And of course it rained the first year <laughs> round. But yeah, they put, a, they, they put turf across the whole bridge. I think it was the second year they actually had a guy drive over at five o'clock in the morning. I don't know if he'd had a bit to drink, but it yeah, went for about three years, I think, until... Oh, you mean he drove over the, the, the pre-laid turf yeah. around the tables? As and, laying the turf. Yeah, you, you know,
1: you've got yeah. to operate sometimes to the lowest common denominator. You're thinking, why are the tables on the Sydney Harbour Bridge?
0: Yeah, I mean, the grass was an interesting move, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think eventually we worked out that it was a lot of effort and a lot of money and not that sustainable, um, and we moved it to Bondi, and we had a breakfast on on the beach, and we had an opera playing at. Uh, sorry, we had not not an opera, we had a, an orchestra playing at sunrise, and Bill Granger was curating the breakfast. But Joanna really drove a lot of that, and yeah, that was far more pleasant an experience, I think, for the people who were attending, and I think particularly for all the people who like to drive over the bridge and not have their you know Sunday's inconvenience through traffic. <laughs> yeah, closures. but there, there's
1: still incredible things that when you think about them and whether you pop them on your resume or it's something, whether the disasters that you held back or successes, that you go, Jesus, that's a one-off. Whoever thought you could shut a bridge down and put breakfast on it.
0: Yeah, I mean, that, it's incredible. It was, that was definitely one of the, the crazier ideas. Yeah. Um, any, um, other, any other crazy ideas that didn't make it to the, because, you know, we're thinking,
1: okay, if you can do that, what else can you do? Oh, that pl- didn't make it to, probably, the, to the There's festival. probably more,
0: more <laughs> events, the, the, the stories of events failing versus the ones that, that succeed. There's all different, I guess, factors or reasons as to why things don't always come to plan. Um, I mean, in in London, it was extremely challenging. We launched a, a similar thing to the night noodle markets at Kensington Palace and about a week before they had the terror attacks on the, um, on the borough market. So that made things just a little bit stressful a week later. Things like that that influence planning and then obviously there's now things like COVID I think this year we had planned our entire festival. We completed it on a Friday for Los Angeles. And then on the Monday, we, we cancelled 150 events. But I guess that wasn't so bad because if you look at Melbourne, Melbourne had the Grand Prix. People, were, I think, were literally lining up to walk in the gates. So I'd rather what happened to me than to happen to, yeah. to some other people. who. Either
1: way, I suppose, down the line, though, it's, it's a massive loss, isn't it? You know, now in Australia, we're in a fairly comfortable place if we can describe that, you know, as much as we're inconvenienced, et cetera. You know, I've spoken to a few people, you know, like Monty, for example, and Jackie that are over uh, in LA, um, and things are very different there right now. So there's a lot of pain down the line, isn't there? A lot of expectation for great festivals, but then pain when they're cancelled.
0: Yeah, I mean, Coachella's just cancelled for the second time around. I think the headline in the LA Times was um, Coachella cancelled again, again. We were lucky because we had enough time to, to pivot the most overused word, I think, of, of <laughs> 2020. Um, so we created a virtual festival and they're still doing virtual festivals in America. And obviously there's a bit of fatigue as far as that's concerned, but we created a lot of virtual events that helped leverage our audience. We were lucky because of being a media company. We, you know, we had people who were wanting to do things. We worked with restaurants. We created and um, are still doing, there's one in a, a week's time, events where we work with actors and shows being in los angeles we have a lot of t- access to talent so we've done dinners where we've combined restaurants that tie in with with particular uh, series or tv shows and we've done that with things like fargo or we did it with Har- henry winkler which was definitely a career career <laughs> highlight getting to work with the fonds <laughs> why was it a career highlight only because you just wanted to walk just walk the, up to the jukebox is, and yeah you know he Smack was, he was really good. Happy we dose. had him and JB Smooth, uh, the guy from Curb Your Enthusiasm, and it was just really funny for an hour. And then we've got one coming up with another restaurant with Jamie Lee Curtis. And often it's the restaurant partnering with a celebrity that might often go to that restaurant. We did one with the, a show called Selena with a Mexican uh, restaurant. It's been interesting. We did a thing with Jose Andreas. So a lot of video and, you know, I guess what was happening here. Yeah. So you're streaming
1: these events or are people, you know, doing dinner and theatre at home? I mean, all you, of a sudden I've got this image of a box arriving at your door, you tuning in and, I don't know, unpacking a meal or cooking at the same correct. time as, yeah. as opera. Is that what we're talking about?
0: You you buy the meal and um, you can have it delivered or you can go and have it picked up. And, right. and have a, we have a 30-minute segment with the chef who talks about the meal and that's then followed by an hour long discussion with whatever the topic happens to be. And at the moment we're heading into award season. So content around the golden globes or the Oscars. And it depends like opportunities come with different chefs or different people based on some of their ideas as well. We're looking at doing an event with Eric Wareheim who's on master of none, and he's got his own wine label, Las Yarras. So we're doing an event with him and pizza trying to keep it interesting because yeah. I think at some stage, as you saw, I mean, they just had the Super Bowl in America. They're pretty re- pretty ready to get back to some kind of normal life or at least some new normal version of life. Yeah.
1: There seems to be a very different mindset in the US and certainly the UK, you know, with the virus to say Australia. What are the, what are the things that you notice most now you've just come back?
0: Well, the US, um, I would say it's not just COVID. You've also had uh, Donald Trump and it's been interesting from uh, the outside looking. Yeah, you, we were going through different stages from obviously Black Lives Matter through to Trump and and COVID. So they were all different storylines, I think, and real issues that were influencing things. And I guess if you look at the UK, although I haven't been working there in the last year, the they seem to have somewhat of a of a summer where they all got to enjoy themselves and then paid the price for it. For, for it later yeah. but it's definitely feels like things are starting to turn for the better in America hopefully I'm definitely no epidemiologist but it does seem like people that I engage with have a bit more of a positive outlook for a number of reasons and I think in Los Angeles where it's been an epicenter they are starting to vaccinate more people than are getting infected which is uh, on a daily basis which is good yep. and tick yeah yep. so people are starting to think towards some form of summer. Um, physical events, maybe we're thinking about Q4, end of right. year, but still don't that's know. still
1: optimistic. Possibly. Yeah.
0: Well, I, we had the owner of the Los Angeles Times, Patrick soon Chong, is a, is a doctor and surgeon, and he is also an inventor of drugs and different cancer treatments. And I think he's trying to... He's confident. He's Well, I think he's not <laughs> confident about doing anything too soon. I don't think he's left his house for a year. Right. No, well, there you go.
1: No, that's not confident. So let's talk about LA because how long have you been there now? Five or so years? Five years, yeah. In terms of being involved in big events and food events like LA, I I get it wrong. Food Bowl. Food Bowl LA, isn't it? Yeah, it's
0: with the Los Angeles Times and Jonathan Gold, who was the late Jonathan Gold, he actually came out to Sydney one year when Joanna was the director as one of our media guests and that was when I first met him and from there somehow I ended up in Los Angeles after leaving Fairfax and got to work with him for three years before he passed away. It and was... just, to,
1: just to pause there, I mean, for people that don't know, and I'm sure most people that do listen to this podcast will know, but he he would be one of the most uh, influential food writers in the States, right, particularly LA. I mean, you'd know that anybody like David Chang or Roy Joy or all the top boys would be terrified, I'm sure, of Jonathan Gold walking in and sitting down at a table.
0: Yeah, he was unlike any of the other yeah. uh, uh, food writers that I had come across. I mean, he was incognito when I first met him, and but he was hard to miss if you knew what he looked like. But he was an amazing man in, in so many ways. But as a food writer, he's the own only Pulitzer Prize winning food writer. And he had an approach that was unique at the time 30 years ago. He didn't rate restaurants. He never really wrote a bad review. So he wasn't there to tell you that your restaurant's worth 17 out of 20 or two stars or one hat. And he tended to avoid writing about you if he didn't enjoy the restaurant. Which is is the kind of gold standard for restaurateurs, but not for food critics. You know what I mean? Like we
1: go, I wish, you know, that if it wasn't good, they just didn't write about you because they're not interested.
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a film about him called City of Gold. And if if you haven't seen it, I would highly recommend because for me that came out just as I moved to LA and it um, really gave me uh, an insight into his thinking and the city itself because... He was someone that tended to write more about food trucks and exploring all the different cultures and cuisines that I think, as he would say, the glorious mosaic of Los Angeles. Mm. He wasn't someone that necessarily really wanted to go and eat in the three-hatted or top restaurants of LA. He didn't want them necessarily to see the Michelin Guide where it had come and gone in California. But yeah, he was just a very interesting person, and also extremely funny and entertaining, yeah. and a really great storyteller. Can,
1: can you share some of the more personal insights if you knew him personally for that period of time?
0: Uh, just getting, perspectives, you know. I mean, just getting to eat with him and and dine with him and explore LA through him. In the end, he'd become such an icon of Los Angeles, which I think is unusual for a food writer to be recognised almost as an icon of a city. When when he passed away, the whole city was. Uh, lit up in gold, lots of different buildings. And he couldn't go anywhere without people wanting to have a conversation with him. And he would always talk to them until two o'clock in the morning. He would be wait, have a line of people wanting to talk to him. Mm. And he was always very patient as far as that was concerned. So and- a dinner out with him required patience too then? Yeah, <laughs> I can see why he wanted to be incognito because he didn't really get to re- relax or enjoy it. But I think in the end, he, he'd he only been out in terms of being able to people know what he looked like for about five years. Because I think it got so ridiculous in the end, everyone knew what he looked like. Yeah. He was not very structured in the sense that he would just want to have a conversation. So if you had someone like Jose Andreas or others who wanted to have every single question scripted, th- that just wouldn't happen because it, Jonathan wouldn't necessarily have Work that out until it started. So that was actually quite uh, a really great way to work in the end because yeah. of, you you could re- rely on him telling a really good story without having to have too much planned in advance. But obviously, that's a tr- that that can be a risky approach sometimes. Yeah, but you get a great narrative if it uh, if it works, right? Living in
1: LA, you know, there's a lot of Australians in LA. Actually, it's got a particular culture and a familiar culture on many levels. Do you find that? I'm talking about food, particularly and.
0: Yeah, I think Australia has definitely had a big influence on the um, the coffee and breakfast culture. You've you've got people um, like Grant Smiley and those guys with EPLP and Curtis Stone, mm. lots of big Melbourne um, people, and more and more so you've had Great White, I think, in, in Venice and a few others. Um, I mean, there's a lot of Australians in Los Angeles, particularly in the entertainment industry. So you have seen a huge influence in terms of, I think, breakfast primarily. Yeah. And that approach, um, I think there's been a few others like uh, Bondi Harvest. But yeah, I mean, obviously the pandemic has really changed things in terms of the restaurant scene. But you were seeing more and more people looking to go over there.
1: Is it, is it sun and lifestyle? Is it a is it a you know in terms of you know east and west coast of America? Is it different mindsets? I mean, is it what, what is it? Do you think
0: so much opportunity? I guess like Los Angeles is such a huge city and it's a completely different world now. So I'm, I, I guess I'm looking back to a year ago. Yeah, rewind um, the
1: clock and pretend all of this yeah, pandemic didn't happen.
0: The, the industry is obviously be, being <laughs> decimated. But I just think that there's so much opportunity and different ideas. And people, I think, always thought that they could bring something new to what was happening in LA. And in the end, you had a lot of people from all around America coming to LA as well, opening restaurants like David Chang and Jose Andreas and others. But... Yeah, you know, I think that people like uh, Grant and EPLP they've really helped they've really carved out a really great spot in terms of uh, a rooftop experience that they've got there and they've obviously brought value with a bit of Melbourne hospitality to LA's restaurant scene um because I think 20 30 years ago the LA restaurant scene was vastly different from what it is yeah. now. Yeah, um, I mean, I remember, really I don't
1: want to interrupt, but I remember 20, just to put it in perspective, I remember visiting probably 20 years ago and thinking, don't like LA and going to San Fran and thinking, yeah, you know, this is, you know, it all seemed a little bit more cultural and interesting and the food was better. And then revisiting probably 10 years later, just going, I don't even recognize the the changes.
0: Just in the time I was there, it was, it it had evolved so much and so many people looking to go. LA as well, I think it, it it had a lower barrier to entry than say San Francisco or New York. So there was more room for creativity because people weren't paying such high overheads in terms yeah. of both their real estate and staff. So there was a lot of opportunity as far as that was concerned, um, but also a different way of thinking in terms of their restaurants, whether that's places like Squirrel or others that were yeah. hugely popular, that were very uh, basic in their setup, but hugely popular um but yeah it's just a bit of a different way of thinking
1: yeah and i think that i can't remember the name of the owner and chef as well but didn't she have some melbourne experience or was that my imagination
0: jessica Coslow. yeah um she's had an interesting year like many yeah, people she's had in, a very, in america in terms yeah, of what was
1: that all surrounding can you remember
0: um well I remember reading about it but it was uh, moldy jam i think it was buckets of
1: moldy jam yeah. in the fridge and this is from someone who'd kind of you know their shtick was bare basics you know kind of very familiar to Melbournians and Australians, that kind of cafe, you know, but great breakfast and all the rest of it. So smashed avocado and all these things would be very familiar, I think. Well, and then somebody posted a picture, didn't they?
0: Definitely doing her own thing in terms of. Um, I don't. I don't. You probably won't find smashed avocado. Okay. That's quite I never often. ate
1: there. I wouldn't. I'm not. It, I, I really
0: it. enjoyed it, and um, it's a place I would take people because of it's quite different from from anything that you experience in. Australia, but that's definitely changing, and you start to see yeah. a bit of squirrel. But can you
1: give us an example?
0: She had this uh, book coming out on right. on jam, and it was not a great time to release that book because I think about a, a week or two before it was due to come out, there was a big controversy around her storage of jam and scraping mold off the top of it, and that mm. being okay. And I think obviously there was much more to the story than just moldy jam, but the image of that and people, the ricotta toast with her three different types of jam on the top that was kind of one of her signature dishes, but it related to so many more things like everything in America over the last year. I think obviously people talk about cancel culture, but it related to the gentrification of where her restaurant was. It related to her former staff and credits for their work. It related to, I guess, just general treatment of uh, different people within that organisation yeah. and it all boiled up and exploded right at the, the time that the book on was out. So it kind Jam of gave everybody an
1: excuse and, and, as you mentioned before, social media and Instagram kind of changed the the space and everybody had so their say. So much
0: changed in the last year.
1: You know what I find interesting with that, you know, for example, Squirrel and all of that media storm and social media storm, probably more importantly around all of that, people just having their say, is that things like that have almost with COVID-19 been at completely the wrong time, you know, so there's almost been a massive pressure, you know, for her and her business and her concept and everything. And then you end up with a whole city that's dealing with much, I shouldn't say bigger problems, but a whole other mess that that refocuses people's attention.
0: A whole country. I mean, you've had restaurants all over America that have had their reckoning too in terms of how they treat their staff and in terms of, racial inequality, where you've had top restaurants in Chicago or you've had ones in, in New York, pizza yeah. places that that uh, like Prince Street Pizza who've just opened in LA and they had a history on Yelp of being racist and abusing anyone who wrote a negative review and here was this hottest pizza shop in America, all of a sudden no one goes there unless you're a racist. Yeah. So that whole cancel culture and places that, You know, we're very hot one minute. All of a sudden, you find out someone who might own it or has a connection to someone, and they're not so cool anymore. And that's been fascinating to see um, because of I think that America as a whole is taking a far deeper look at itself and and people. And that's true in media as well. You know, around representation and trying to really uncover inequities that have traditionally existed. Um, I mean you saw the other day in the Super Bowl you had Joe Biden come out telling them that they maybe should think about hiring more black coaches. Yeah. It's about taking a proactive approach rather than just sitting back and expecting that
1: yeah. to happen. And I think when we've looked from hospitality perspective when we looked at the US in the past we've always gone you know what a great environment for a restaurateur to operate in you know like it's uh, it's fast and furious and you may be in maybe out but it was more about ridiculously low alley rates high tipping culture. Yes. You know so typically and you know I'm probably Getting a bit old and quoting numbers from way back, but people might be earning 375 or 475 and making everything else up in tips, for example,
0: and yeah. realizing
1: that the unions we get how many weeks annual leave in Australia? We get four weeks at least. I think in the US it's
0: there is no average of two, but that's two a and, and there is no worker
1: exactly. So yeah. there is actually no minimum. So you can, and I never realized any of this. I never realized that you could actually end up just working all year and not be able to afford. To take a holiday, and there was no mandatory
0: holidays. I mean, don't quote me on this, but something like thirty million or forty million people who live in America who are undocumented. A lot of them work in restaurants. Mm-hmm. They're not going by an official hourly wage, whether they're working in a hotel or a or a top restaurant. And I think the pandemic has really exposed, I guess, even more some of the inequalities in the system because of they have. You have that perspective where a lot of people are getting unemployment benefits, but if you're if you're not a documented worker, you don't have access to unemployment yeah. benefits and so you have to keep working. So it's just created a bigger divide and I think people are looking at that much more closely. Yeah,
1: and traditionally obviously it's been one of the lowest paid industries and of course if you're earning a, um, a very low hourly rate, a medical for example, then you're in a, a very difficult position certainly now in these difficult times.
0: Well, I think that 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 that's the conversation. They're wanting to have a look at the entire structure of the industry. Whether or not that bigger change will happen, I don't know, but I I think that uh, the restaurant industry as a whole has had a terrible time, obviously, over the last year and what comes out of it moving forward. I think, obviously, there's been some change in terms of the the presidency and that hopefully can't get any worse, (laughs) but hopefully the pandemic also, as it starts to uh, turn around, Things can get better and they start addressing, you know, people like Bernie Sanders are, are onto the $15 minimum wage and yeah. that's his big target. Then you've also got the overall move towards trying to recognize undocumented workers because, I mean, they all live there and they've yeah. been living there and a lot of them have had kids. So yeah, that's, that's- going to change.
1: I love making this series, and I hope that you love listening too. If you do, subscribe and send us a message, because believe it or not, we actually read those messages. What we want to know is what you think about the show, more importantly about the conversations that we have with our guests. We love hearing from you. That's what I'm trying to say. And if you're feeling like it, maybe even recommend the show to a friend. You never know, they might find it as delicious as you do. In LA, for example, uh, I remember going to a, a restaurant like, um, and I'm trying to remember, Jelena's, I think it is? Which yes. is down in... Uh, Venice. Venice. I was thinking Muscle Beach, but it's not Muscle Beach. I was thinking Arnold Schwarzenegger. That's what I was yes. thinking. Yes.
0: Well, it's just across the road from his, his gym, I think. Gold's yeah, Gym. That's right. Yeah. And
1: I loved that, for example, because it felt kind of so Australian. What are your favourite restaurants right now?
0: I lived around the corner... Pre-lockdown. Um, ...from there, and... I loved that. I loved it during the week, except for on a weekend when you'd have to wait for two hours mm. to get something. Mm. Um, but um, yeah, I mean, what they've been doing there um, with Jelena and Justa and that all that Venice yeah, vibe is too. is amazing. Um, and you know they've got Google over the road and yes, Gold's Gym. But yeah, the the lineup could be quite quite stressful. But I mean, I think the thing about Los Angeles is obviously access to, which you miss here, is Mexican cuisine. Um, and getting to go not just for tacos, places like Sonora Town, then also you know the higher end restaurants. But I mean, LA, there's so many great, great restaurants in in Los Angeles. Picking a, a favorite, a favorite. Um, it doesn't
1: have to be a favorite. But you just meet a regular that you like because it's local. I remember Matt, George, and I went to a, a car park, and I'm trying to remember the name of the taco truck, but it's famous. A couple of taco trucks it was a car park, and felt like the middle of nowhere, but it probably wasn't. And just this place was packed, cars coming in from all directions. Felt yeah. like a dodgy area too. And they had a Pro- bit of pineapple stuck on the top and they were just, you know, taking off little bits, flicking the pineapple. And I think we, we ate for something like, I don't know, 10 bucks.
0: Yeah, I mean, t- from the taco scene in, in Los Angeles, it, I think the, the ones that have been popular now are the El Russo and, and those sorts of people, but it's always changing in the depth of uh, different styles of tacos as well. You know, there's these guys... From tacos 1986 who i think are probably trying to take over the world that started as a a pop-up and now they've got a whole chain of restaurants Mm. that they're doing and and they're from tijuana so they do tijuana style tacos and then sonora town which you know have the their own unique tortillas they're huge hugely popular but then you have the higher end restaurants like taco maria in orange county and what carlos salgado is doing there that you just don't have that food experience I don't think here, unless you can recommend any great taco yeah. places, it's just yeah, I'm not I'm sure people same. are screaming on the other end of this podcast, but
1: no. And it's not, I don't think it's, uh, for me, it's not a go-to.
0: You know, we went through
1: a little, you know, taco phase and then it's kind of disappeared. They just don't so, taste
0: the same here though, yeah. do they? I mean, my go-to if, I'm, if it's someone coming from Australia would be something like Republic. Yeah. Which is both a French restaurant at night and Walter and Margarita, I think she has a Filipino background and he has a, French background, but it's an all-day cafe with a bakery. And then at night, it's a fine dining restaurant. But Republic is incredible. And I think that's probably the most... That would be the busiest restaurant mm. in Los Angeles. They've been operating mostly through the pandemic, but that would be a go-to in terms of guests. But then I, Korean cuisine, obviously, in Los Angeles is, is huge. And then you've got your fancy restaurants like Major Domo where... I'd take my parents if they were in town for that style of an experience. It's so hard to pull out any one particular place. LA has a big Filipino food scene, like Larsa. And there was a guy, um, Charles Olalia, who had Rice Bar and I think Mamser. But a lot of these places have closed, hopefully, when they come they can come back in some shape or form when the yeah. pandemic's over. Um, so how
1: do you how do you see that going? So if we're looking, you know, to the future and going back to what you said, I mean, we, do you think we're talking six months before? You know, where's where is your planning? You know, heading towards trying to
0: regenerate some of pre twenty twenty and well, they've just been allowed to start trading again with their patios. They can see some light at the end of the tunnel, and those who've managed to pivot and have takeout as their option. Hopefully, you'll start to see a lot of those places that closed early on reopen because they've just been sitting there dormant. Yeah. Um, there was a, a lot of uh, amazing restaurants that closed early on because I think they could see the writing on the wall yeah. and just thought, well, we, we might come back at a later date. And some of the top restaurants in Los Angeles that just disappeared – Hopefully they come back yeah. um, in some way, shape, or form.
1: I think in the industry here too, that people thought that you know that you had two choices: you either just trying to kind of trade through it and take the crumbs if you could, or and I think personally the better way is just to put it in hibernation and try and stem the flow of losses, and then try and save that piggy bank for reopening and reopening in a positive time where you know just you're…
0: just trying, trying, trying to survive. You trying can, to survive. Places like here's looking at you, and they've got all day baby as well, which is one of the more popular restaurants in LA, I think that their landlord just wanted to keep getting paid the same amount they were getting paid before, which is insane. Yeah. yeah. So
1: from an events perspective, media events perspective, I suppose you need that kind of a groundswell of activity and regrowth and, re- and confidence to start throwing in big events like, you know, Food Bowl LA once again. Is that right?
0: Yeah. We, we'll probably do a some form of virtual with patio festival this year yeah. and with some online events. We're lucky as a media company that we can do that. But looking at the end of this year, we would normally have an event called The Taste, which would be 40 or 50 of the top restaurants in Los Angeles at Paramount Studios. And, you know, we would love to be able to bring that back in some way, shape or form. Most people were thinking Q4, but it'll depend on what's safe. Um, Having people roaming around, I think is going to be tricky, but having people potentially seated Obviously, people have been doing a lot of things in cars, um, but I think that's probably going to start to reach its use-by date. But yeah, I mean, Q4 is where we're trying to make things happen and all different sorts of things are being considered. And I'm aware of other publishers and other people who are looking at Q4 as the potential in America versus Australia. It's a completely different conversation. It's about 50% capacity even when we might not have COVID in the community um, versus there, it's obviously in the community. So yeah, it's it, there'll be a tipping point at some stage where things can start to come back with all different things. You'd imagine
1: LA's the town of the car, right? You can't get anywhere. It's going to be the biggest drive-through event, food event on the planet, isn't that the next we, step? We did a <laughs> we
0: did a drive-through last year with with Yeti and and a barbecue and a film component. But yeah, it was a it was a weird time. Whether or not we'll be able to do that this time around. But yeah, and end of this year, hopefully something can come back. Yeah, um, that's what we're all hoping for. Q4.
1: One of the last things I wanted to answer, I think, is that every you know media bigger media event, you know, whether it's uh, you know Sydney Good Food Month or you know Food Bowl, there's always a um, a leaning towards a, a charity and fulfilling those goals. Um, what are you most proud of? Do you think? over the years being involved with various huge events and being able to give back in in some way aside from the kind of commercial realities that you've talked about in the beginning?
0: The Sea to Surf, I know this is not food related, but we actually never had a charity program and we introduced one with fundraising and we ended up, I think we've now raised over $50 million for different charities. I mean, Food Bowl in LA, we've probably raised just over a million dollars for various charities. We have always targeted areas around homelessness and food access and sustainability. I did work with Massimo Batura on creating his Refettorio mm. in London. That was a little bit stressful, but it was a great achievement. Can you just explain that? The facility why is that was still there. Stressful?
1: I think it was a great initiative. He was actually on MasterChef, you know, promoting yeah. the same thing. Which
0: because if he wanted to knock out the counselling room and put in a Gucci. <laughs> no, it was just a big project to, to achieve his vision and uh, make that happen was um, probably something I didn't, Need to get myself so committed to in year one of launching a festival, but uh, it was amazing. We did a we also did a food a conference with him with Food for Soul, um, and I got to see what he did in in Rio. So that was definitely an, an achievement. This year we we worked a lot with Jose Andreas and World Central Kitchen and the LA Food Bank. We did a big event with him online, which was showcasing the work of World Central Kitchen, which I think he's just taken it to a whole nother level in America. He's got the support of a lot of big corporates that we yeah. work with and he's been a champion of trying to help in areas of disaster and if yeah. there's one thing COVID is, it's a disaster. Yeah.
1: I think his influence was felt here in Australia uh, post fires. You know, there was some roadmaps and, you know, information that flooded out of that over this way um, so that people could start up their own emergency kitchens and things like that, which was incredible.
0: Yeah, and I think during this year's festival, we we're one of the things that wasn't necessarily directly about money, but we worked with the LA Food Bank and through the work we did with them profiling them, they had a big logistical challenge around actually getting their food out and being able to meet the demand because of it was just so overwhelming for them. And through the articles and the promotion, they managed to connect with one of the senior executives at Salesforce and they re-engineered their whole distribution system for them, which is obviously not a financial donation, but basically helped it change the way that they managed to deal with the demand that they were experiencing. So th- things like that, I think, are, are, are great outcomes versus the tangible things like building repertorios. Mm. Yeah, exactly. So what's next for you? I was actually back here in, in, in March last right, year. Andrew. So I, I arrived, I had, my, I had a birthday here and I was due <laughs> to fly back and I thought, oh, maybe I won't go back. So yeah. I've been here for a whole year and I've been working remotely. Um, and one of the things, I'm from South Australia originally, I'm doing a bit of work with, Um, The South Australian government looking at their events post pandemic and um, on a group, an advisory group there that's looking at some event ideas, but I'm planning on going back. I've got a flight booked back at the end of April, um, but I guess I got to get the vaccine first. So we'll see. It might be a little bit later than that. You'll Need the documentation, and as you said
1: it, you rubbed your hands on your trousers and you looked a little I'm uneasy. I'm pretty happy. So, maybe, being, maybe yeah. I don't know, does that mean that you're excited about the prospect, or are you just going to wait and see? South what Australia happens, has been April? a pretty
0: good place to be during that during yeah. the pandemic, and it's one of those things where I'm really conscious when I'm having conversations of people who've been locked at home for like everybody in Melbourne that's aware of the, the brutal experience that, that COVID was that just for them, it's A parallel universe at the moment to think how we operate and just talking in a general conversation about I'm just going to get a coffee or I'm going to go to a restaurant or I'm going to go to the Australian Open or whatever it is there that's foreign to them at the moment. Yeah living in a different
1: world but but Victoria's been had its own sense of itself which has been very different and when we've you know when I've spoken to friends in South Australia they're just like we're sorry because we're just all the way through winter etc just Carrying on as if nothing had happen. Very lucky.
0: But I've had friends say, "Why would you want to come back now? It's a it's a hellhole." And then I've had friends say things are getting better. But be- but I like the idea of being back for summer. And, at and the end this end is of the like day, going back to LA. Yeah, but I, I can't go back and from a work perspective until I've had the vaccine. So I guess we'll, we'll great see.
1: great food culture Adelaide in South Australia. I mean, it's got to be the best. We always used to laugh on MasterChef that. A high proportion of successful, you know, whether they were winners or in the top ten, all came from South Australia. There's something in the water. But what a different city, uh, Adelaide to LA.
0: You know, there are actually some similarities: uh, the the climate and the the setting. It's obviously not surrounded by mountains that you can ski on, but the Adelaide beaches are kind of the
1: same. Quite. It does have a
0: it does have a lot of similarities. Adelaide's very spread out, but it's obviously not quite as big, and and the (laughs) popular film scenes not quite the same, but. Um, there are some similarities, but yeah, the food in, in South Australia is amazing. And that's been one of the things I've got to travel around a little bit, but being in, in Adelaide and also the regions getting to go to those restaurants and drink that wine, you know, there's so many great places in Adelaide. And I guess I'm now I'm working with the government. I guess I got to say that. Yeah. Well, no,
1: not necessarily. And it's all on our travel list. We've now, all us Victorians are like, so where do we go? We're not going to Italy or, you know, Thailand or Bali, are we? So, um, all these different places are on the list for some people. I love Adelaide, South Australia, as I do, you know, Queensland, and I've just got a list now for the next six months of getting back over the border. And people go, aren't you worried? I go, no. I need it's, o- to, it's open I need to now. Go. You, you no, come. it's open now. I'm yeah. booked. I'm, I'm going to Tasmania. I'm going up country uh, uh, next week, actually. Um, and Adelaide in about three months, so yeah, I'm looking forward to it.
0: Yeah, well, let us know. I mean, I think that is one of the whilst you can whilst the borders are open, getting to experience more of Australia. That I would. mean, I, I went up to the Flinders Ranges, and I hadn't been there since I was a little kid, and that was that was incredible seeing that. Um, I don't know if I'd go there for the food, but um, <laughs> for the for the sights, it was it was amazing. But yeah, I mean, Adelaide's definitely um, got a great restaurant scene, okay. and obviously a lot of great wine. And hasn't it changed? You have a very interesting life. And I think what's
1: been nice about chatting to you is the fact that, you know, from my perspective, I've always seen events as a different kind of thing. And even though I've been involved in many of these, I actually don't think of what's behind it. So you've given us a fabulous insight and a different perspective. And, you know, we'll keep your fingers crossed that you can keep jumping backwards and forwards from... LA to Adelaide or LA to Sydney and uh, enjoy the best of both worlds
0: well thank you and yeah I mean you've seen obviously in Melbourne too like the work of the Melbourne food and wine team the amount of stuff they've been doing from New Year's to to everything else it's you've just got to keep adapting and evolving yeah and they've been doing an amazing job as well so hopefully eventually Australia loves an event they can all come back bigger and better a bit like the tennis
1: absolutely well thank you very much for coming on
0: pleasure thank you thanks thank you If you've
1: ever been to LA, it is a world of food. And what is beautiful about it, it's a melting pot of so many different cultures. But you can't go to LA and not visit one of the many taco trucks. And I love a good taco. In fact, we all love a taco. It's like a little vehicle for the most delicious things that you can possibly think of. The secret, of course, is great corn tortillas. But beyond that, what I love is kind of texture. You want crispy, it could be deep fried fish or you want soft and kind of unctuous like roasted pork or pulled pork. But what makes it for me is acidity. At home, taco taco's not complete without something crunchy and acidic. And for me, it's pickled red cabbage. I love it. And it's super easy. And all you need to do is shred the red cabbage really finely. You can use a mandolin for this and then drench it in your favorite vinegar. I love red wine vinegar, salt, pepper. You want to put a pinch of chili, go for it. Leave that for about an hour or so, and then simply turn that or move that or stir that every half an hour for about two hours, and then you end up with this super crunchy, super delicious, Stores well in the fridge, keeps for up to two weeks, and it kind of works with everything, including a great taco. A Plate to Call Home is presented by me, Gary Megan, and produced by Dave Zwalensky, and audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.